MP, it's our final event of the year. Oh, it's all a bit sad, Bretto, but after four big events for 2018, we are going out with a bang with one more wellness base camp, and the location for this one is regional Victoria, the great town of Bendigo awaits. Oh, and how's this for a lineup, MP? Bendigo will be rocking with the rock star of wellness, Damien Christoph. The art of self-love angel herself, Kim Morrison, hits the stage. As will the natural nutritionist, Steph Lowe. And I'll tell you what, Steph's presentation at the summit on fasting was a showstopper. You'll be there, Bretto. I'll be there too. And Wendy Stewart from Wendy's Way will be there to share her inspirational story, which really did go off at the Wellness Summit earlier this year. It's Saturday, October 27 at the beautiful All Seasons Resort Hotel in Bendigo and tickets are selling fast. Two for one tickets for this one day of inspiration, information and empowerment are available at thewellnessbasecamp.com. That's right, folks. Get your two-for-one tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com before they run out and then the price goes up. Finish your year of wellness in style at The Wellness Base Camp in Bendigo, Saturday, October 27. Tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com. The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their Healthy Kitchen Oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimising your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 195 of The Real Food Reel, we are joined by our regular guest, Kirsty Worth, for our very first gut health Q&A. In today's episode, you will learn about food behaviours and the impact of early life and our previous food choices on our gut health of today. We explore inflammation, the impact of dairy on the gut, food intolerances, how to treat chronic reflux the importance of resistant starch, and so much more. Hi, Kirsty, and welcome back to the show. Hey, Steph. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to explore this topic together because we've actually had a lot of questions coming in from our recent shows on the gut, um, bone broth, and you know all those 
things around testing that you and I have explored in those previous episodes. So I thought it was really important to do a Q&A that would address some of those specific questions that people still have um, that has come from those podcasts. So I'd love to jump straight in and just get a couple of um, points clarified about bone broth. And I do get this question a little bit in clinic as well because, you know, the, the advice might be to drink one cup a day. But the question is, you know, what's a cup? You know, how does that differ between maybe when you're making it at home versus something that you've purchased, you know, online or at the health food store and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, the type of bones that are used, the um, concentration of it, the mineral content, how much gelatin's in it, it does differ quite a lot. And there are some bone broth companies that it's amazing. They actually put some of that information on the packet, which is great. So you can see that. Um, but, you know, obviously everything starts back in the kitchen. So you want to be trying your best as often as you can to make your own bone broth. And um, how much you have in a day is really going to depend on where you're at with your health. So, for example, if you're rocking along, things are feeling pretty good and you just want to nurture your body to maintain how awesome you feel, then, you know, one cup of broth a day would be beautiful. Now, that might be literally on its own as a cup. Or it might be in a slow-cooked meal that you've had or in a soup that you've had, in a curry. There are lots of ways that you can get that bone broth in. Now, if you've got more complex health issues, if certainly if you've got gut health issues, if you've got a leaky gut or if you've got joint pain, if your liver is under pressure, then, you know, the recommendation is, you know, three to six cups of bone broth a day. So, um, you know, you can't have enough broth. It's just such a healing elixir for the body. And so it should be sort of standard practice that you get in that if you are really trying to level up and improve your health, the bone broth absolutely needs to go in. Now, making it at home, if you want to get that extra gelatin up, if you want to improve the mineral content, just little added tweaks like make sure you add that apple cider vinegar in when you're um, doing the slow cook because that will help draw the minerals out of the bones and it will also help with that acid alkaline balance in the bone broth. And um, putting things like if you're doing a chicken broth, putting in um, the chicken, the necks and the feet, and you get a heap more collagen when you add those extra little bits in. And then obviously adding in you know, your garlics and your onions and all the different flavours can change it and make it really awesome as well. But um, it, it is, as we've talked about, Steph, it's like the, the absolute benchmark 101. It's no, you know, everyone can do it. It's cost effective. It is the way to kind of get started and not feel too overwhelmed with, um, you know, if you're recovering your health or maintaining your health. Yeah, I definitely agree. And the specific question we've got here is, or the statement is, I often add a few tablespoons of broth to a cup of boiling water or miso. And the question is, is this not a full cup worth of broth? And I think it, it's going to depend on whether it is homemade or whether you're following the instructions of the store-bought brand that would give you, you know, how, what ratio you, you would use to create the one cup equivalent. Mm. 
And absolutely, like if you um, sort of reduced your broth down, it's going to be far more concentrated. And so a few tablespoons with your miso would be absolutely, you know, beautiful. It does just depend, but um, reducing it down is going to make it more concentrated and you don't need as much. Mm. Yeah, and by that you mean when after it's sort of ready to go, the water level is quite low and, and no more water is added to that to fill up the slow cooker, for example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then when it, it's so cool when it goes into the fridge and it cools down, it is, it is just literally like jelly. It's mm. just a thick, thick jelly. Yeah, that's obviously then a really concentrated version. So, yeah, I guess the question's a little bit dependent on, on what we're talking about in terms of whether it is homemade, how it's made, obviously what bones, um, or whether it is store-bought and, and what their instructions are. So, yeah, playing around with what brand you've got and, and definitely, as you said, you know, get into the kitchen and, and try and have, have a play with it because it mm. it's worth the effort. It's, it's an amazing reward at the end. Oh, look, to actually throw it into a slow cooker, which is how I make mine, everyone does it differently, um, I reckon it would take five minutes max mm-hmm. to throw it all in, put the water in, apple cider vinegar, bit of, you know, bit of this, bit of that, and switch it on. So it's, it's, it's not a big outlay of time. It's just getting into a routine. <laughs> mm, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So let's switch gears a little bit. We've got um, a question from Dave. He's, he's wondering about the damage that we have done to our gut in the past, like when we were younger based on, you know, previous food choices or, or how, um, how and when we eat in terms of, like, say, old food behaviours. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So as, um, as we know, you inherit your gut microbiome as you pass down through that birth canal from your mother. So that really does set the scene for laying down the foundations for when you mature and when you grow up. So that is kind of the first starting point. Now, um, if your mum has a, you know, rocking sort of microbial community, she's going to hand that on to you and, you know, through breastfeeding and the right food choices, your gut microbiome is going to flourish with lots of diversity. If that's not the case, which is, you know, what happened to my kids, I gave birth to them and all they inherited was a shocking array of pathogens and imbalances. And so for them, the damage started quite young. So that's the first question that um, we really should be asking ourselves is, you know, what was going on for my mum? How, you know, when, when I was born, was I born through C-section or was it a natural delivery? Um, you know, did I have any allergies or eczema or, you know, colic or was I, did I sleep well? Was it hard to settle? All those sorts of things because sometimes it's not, damage caused by what we eat, how we eat, and when we eat, sometimes it's actually how we started life. Mm. So, um, you know, I I see a lot through my clients this sort of um, beating yourself up sort of process of, oh, my gosh, I really went for it in my, you know, from my when I turned 15 to when I was 40 and I just trashed my body and I ate this and I ate that and I drank this and I drank that and, you know, I was, um, all I had was sugar and McDonald's and those sorts of things. And um, we can't really beat ourselves up over that because it may have been right back from the start when we inherited our gut microbiome 
Um, and, you know, you, you never sort of know when it all started. But um, we do certainly make changes to our gut microbiome by what we eat and how, you know, and obviously how and when we eat it. So, and that can start at a very early age. And so if we're, you know, eating sort of rice cereal from an early age and then we're having lots of processed foods, lots of sugar, um, you know, sort of that frankenfood from the get-go, we're going to grow different microbes in our gut that are probably going to lend themselves more to, you know, inviting pathogens into the body, so parasites or different sorts of bacterial infections. So it really does make a big difference um, what happens when you're younger. Now, the other thing that um, makes a big difference is that we can be all cool when we're young, not have any problems. And I've had lots of clients that say this to me, oh, I, you know, I had my gut was fine. I had perfect stools. Everything was awesome when I was young. But as I've aged, it's got worse. Now, we know that the diversity in our gut bacteria as we age changes. We have less and less diversity and our um, body's ability to, you know, obviously have a robust gut environment, it does change as we grow older. So we may have had that damage then when we were younger, but it wasn't until going through things like puberty, um, you know, having children, stress, whatever it may be, and then just age can lower the diversity and then that can make a change as well. Obviously, when we're younger, we eat um, whatever's going. <laughs> and so, you know, if you've got a diet of Snickers bars and Coke when you're younger, that, that will change, change your gut microbiome as well. So, uh, yeah, it does make a huge impact. But the exciting thing is that we know that we can change that. So it's very exciting that we don't have to sit in this story of, you know, I was born with a dodgy gut and then I ate, you know, pretty poor food choices and this is now why I have a damaged gut microbiome. We don't need to, you know, sort of engage too much with that story. We know now that we can really, really change our gut diversity. We can change who lives in there. We can change um, how our, you know, our gut behaves to absorb nutrients and to support our immune system. So, yeah, I always see it as a sort of a positive, okay, well, that's what happened, but this is the fun stuff. We can tweak it and change it and see it as a challenge to um, improve our gut microbiome. On top of that, sorry, Steph, I'm rambling on here, but on top of that, I, I do want to say that it, it is vital that we know that our gut diversity does drop off as we age. So it is even more important to get out into nature, get our hands in the dirt, eat fermented and probiotic foods to keep topping up that microbial community so, you know, we don't see that sort of drop off as we age because you, you just need to keep topping it up. Yeah, I love that advice. And I think it's really important to focus on what you can change because, you know, we'll talk about testing as we often do. There, there's no, you know, there's no timeline there, unfortunately. Like 
whether that is unfortunately or not, I think you, you can't exactly tell when the onset of any situations or um, bacterial changes occurred, but you can go back and create your own timeline and look at, you know, I've never been the same since, you know, answer that statement yourself and, and put together a bit of a timeline to understand maybe what has impacted your gut in the past so that you can, you know, be aware of that and address that in the future. But I think, as you say, it's really important to focus on what we can do because we also know that our gut can change in the right direction in, in you know, a day or so. So there's a lot we can do to, I guess, counteract what we did when we were younger before we have the knowledge, before we had the knowledge that we have now. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's just such a great sort of wake-up call, Jeepers, I'm never going back there again. <laughs> so let's, let's learn a new sort of way of life and a new sort of philosophy on how we move, how we nourish ourselves, how we spend our spare time, all of those kinds of things. So we, we just know that we're going to create this beautiful, diverse gut environment and then whatever gets thrown at us, it's going to be robust enough to handle it. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the two litres of Diet Coke and low-fat chocolate milk I used to try and think uh-huh. of food when I was in high school. Awesome. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Absolutely. All right, so another question from Dave actually in a similar vein, talking about eating habits. Um, Dave wants to know if our habits can cause inflammation or gut issues as much as the types of food we eat? Okay, great question. And I need to unpack that into a couple of different areas. So can eating habits cause inflammation? Well, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about eating habits, sometimes we call it, um, you know, eating hygiene or, you know, there's a few different ways of describing it. But I read that as, eating habits such as sitting in front of the TV and stuffing your face at 10 o'clock at night, Um, you know, eating in the car on the way to work. Literally, I've seen people walking down the street eating their salad or their lunch, Um, you know, and um, comfort eating as well. And so, and then just snacking heaps instead of really good quality, nourishing, wholesome meals. So, that's what um, I feel Dave's talking about when he's talking about eating habits. Is that what you think, Steph? Yeah, I definitely think that he's uh, perhaps noticed that <laughs> food hygiene <laughs> is really important and it does need to be explored. Yeah, and so absolutely that can cause inflammation because all of those scenarios that I just talked about then are all scenarios that basically block your body's ability to digest that food. So we know how um, important it is for us to be in that nervous system response where we're nice and relaxed, we're not stressed, and we can sit down and eat our food and then be able to digest it. So if you're not in that nice calm state and digesting your food appropriately, you will have undigested food cruising on down through your digestive system and you can then start that's when you start feeding like parasites pathogens we have undigested food leaking into the bloodstream our immune system starts to flare up and then that's where the inflammation occurs so definitely it 
comes from that sort of stressed out response of eating in the wrong environments and those poor eating habits and then the sort of secondary effects of that causing the inflammation because the body just doesn't know what to do with undigested food. It has to sort of be processed in different areas and puts stress on things like your gallbladder and your liver and yeah, all sort your pancreas and all sorts of different um, functions of the body. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And now the types of food we eat will absolutely cause inflammation. So there are numerous foods that are available um, to us these days that will cause inflammation just as much as our eating habits. Um, certainly any processed food really is going to cause inflammation. Um, you know, foods containing high amounts of sugar, and I even um, believe that, you know, too much fruit has got too much sugar in it. And if we're eating huge amounts of that, that can cause inflammation. I know for me personally, if I eat too much fruit, I inflame very, very quickly because my body is just not designed to handle that much fructose in a day. And so my liver gets really stressed out, my gut gets stressed out, and, um, you know, the body just doesn't feel right. So certainly processed food, sugar, there are some people that can't handle certain types of grains like gluten, for example. There are some people that can't even handle grains full stop for a period of time. And certainly any processed food, I believe, so food that's not found in nature can cause inflammation. And so it really is about finding which food suits you best and then which foods do cause you inflammation and then minimising those foods or in some circumstances like dairy and gluten for some people, you just have to um, minimise it completely until the body sort of gets rid of that inflammation and can find that balance. But um, absolutely, eating habits and the type of food can just send someone's body into a complete spin of inflammation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the eating habits is important to reiterate because we, like I get often people coming to see me with quite typical digestive symptoms, whether it's bloating or, you know, changes in bowel habits. And the first couple of questions I ask is, um, you know, how many times do you chew each mouthful and what are you doing when you're eating lunch or, or dinner usually? And, um, the sheepish grins on the, on the faces when people are like, oh, well, you know, they think that they've never even thought about the fact that they have to chew every mouthful 20 times, which, you know, obviously digestion starts in the mouth and it is the foundation. So I think we absolutely have to make time to prioritize those habits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I even know now, Steph, we've joked about this when we've been out for dinner together, which is Mm. not often enough because we live in different states, but I get so excited when I go out for dinner with my friends, um, mainly because I'm a mum, it doesn't happen often enough or I'm not sure and I get so involved in the conversation that um, sometimes, you know, I've even had to take digestive enzymes or literally sit there and go, hang on a minute, I've just got to take some deep breaths and calm myself down Mm -hmm. so I can actually digest this food because I know I just get so, and, and it's a good excitement, but my body still sees it as exciting and um, you, you know, and very hard for me to digest my food. So it, it's sometimes not all bad. It's sometimes just a joyful thing that you still have to recognise, like like I do when I eat out, and and make sure that you're um, accommodating for that, and you know that it's happening. 
That's exactly right. You know, you're in that sympathetic state and it's not always negative. It can, it's really, it's really positive in the right doses. So, you know, that's an example of where like a, a good stress is still something to consider. And I talk about this to, you know, my clients, particularly those that are either teachers or shift workers. Usually I find they're the ones who, if, even if they're lucky, get five minutes to themselves a day um, and mm. we often change around their meals to give them more liquid-based meals, whether it's smoothies or soup, soups or really slow-cooked options for when they are at work because, you know, yes, you need to set up food behaviours but a lot of it comes down to the environment as well. So it's looking for those strategies that you can use to support the circumstances that you're in and then when you are going to have that meal um, that, you know, needs to be chewed and needs that proper parasympathetic state that, you know, you're doing that when you have control over your environment, when you can do your deep breathing or take your apple cider vinegar or your digestive enzymes and so on. Yeah. It's certainly when I was teaching as a PE teacher and, you know, you, you can be walking up to 10, 12 Ks a day just by, you know, just the nature of teaching when I moved to just having soups for lunch and, yeah, liquids for, you know, morning tea, that was such a game changer for me with my energy levels because I'd always slump after lunch mm. because I just didn't digest and get any nutrients out of my food. So absolutely, Steph, it's, um, and then when you come home and you can really focus on the food and, um, you know, and then it's interesting, me being a teacher, my husband being a shift worker at the hospital, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> we discovered that, yeah, it really does matter how you digest your food. Yes, absolutely. But yeah. I do love this conversation because the strategies are fairly simple. They're not expensive or groundbreaking. It's just about, you know, either moving some things around. So moving that, um, let's say if it is lunch during that work time, that maybe that is a bit of a smaller meal or, or it's a li- liquid-based meal and you have a larger breakfast or a slightly bigger dinner if it can be earlier. And there's lots you can do to work within the realms of your schedule. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And you will absorb your food better once you make that change. And so um, even though it feels weird that you might change it around, you'll start to feel so much more nourished and you'll start to feel, um, yeah, like you don't need to sort of constantly be snacking and eating because you're actually getting what you need from your food. So it is a big game changer. Mm, I totally agree. Now, in a similar question, or at least along that inflammation line, um, Kathy would like a few more specifics in particular about dairy. So the question is, why exactly does dairy cause inflammation and how much is too much? <laughs> ah. <laughs> wow, can of worms, Kathy. No. Um, okay, so let me, let me try and break this down. So there are multiple reasons why dairy can cause inflammation. So one of the first ones is that if you have certain pathogens living within your body, Um, specifically in the small intestine. So some of you may know of the concept of SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So you have an overgrowth of some form of um, infection in your small intestine. So something like Enterococcus or Streptococcus or Klebsiella or Staphylococcus or those sorts of things. Those guys love sugar. They feed off the sugar And dairy 
has a lactose sugar in it. So if you're having dairy and you've got those infections, which a lot of people do, um, those pathogens or those infections in your small intestine are going to grab onto that lactose sugar and it's going to feed them. They're going to multiply. They're going to release toxic metabolites into your body. Your body is going to freak out and send out the army, which is your inflammatory response, and that's when you get the bloating, the cramping, the diarrhea, the rashes, the blocked up, you know, sinuses, um, an array of you know things that people get when they have dairy um, intolerances and getting inflammation from dairy. So that's that's one thing: is it can feed the bad bugs in your body. The other thing is, if someone has a leaky gut, so they don't have those pathogens there, but they the um, the wall of their gut has been compromised. Now that might be compromised because of eating um, processed sugars or processed foods. You might have um, a, an allergy or an intolerance to things like gluten that can really damage the gut wall. Um, even we now know that things like Roundup, so the glyphosate in Roundup can really damage the integrity of your gut wall. If that integrity of the gut wall has been damaged, the casein protein in the dairy can leak in through that damaged gut wall into the bloodstream and can cause that inflammatory response as well. So once again, the whole body just sort of goes into this high alert inflammation, runny nose, headache, rashes, that kind of thing. And then, um, you know, once again, it is about that digestion does, are you eating that, di- that dairy, which is very hard to digest, in an environment where it's nice and calm and relaxed? And also, do you have the, my- the right microbial community to actually break it down? So we've gone through that you might have some infections in there, you might have a um, compromised gut wall, but then the other thing is if you didn't have those things, do you actually even have the dudes in there to break it down extrapolate all the awesome things out of dairy so then you can use it in your body to function at sort of optimal levels. Like dairy has um, tryptophan in it, which is an awesome amino acid that we that just makes us feel amazing. Um, and, you know, it helps us with serotonin and it helps us with our sleep and melatonin. So you want those good bugs in there digesting that dairy so you can have all of those amazing, you know, positive neurotransmitters or you know brain chemicals that make you feel great so they're for me they're the sort of the top three things that can go wrong if um you eat dairy and you don't feel great yeah i think that's a really great summary um i know kathy very well and i'm pretty sure that she feels good on dairy but is probably just making sure there's not any you know underlying inflammation she's not addressing so what do you think about, um, like, I'd actually like to hear your thoughts on the difference between, say, cows versus, versus a goats and sheep, if you've got an opinion on that. Um, yeah. But I, I yeah. want to sort of try and address that, how much is too much. Like, I appreciate it's not going to be, like, you can't answer the question for Kathy per se, but give us a little bit of an idea, if you can, around volume as well or preference. 
Okay. So <laughs> we know that, <laughs> wow. Um, no, we know that uh, sheep and goats dairy has a smaller protein in it than the cow does. Mm. And even with cow dairy, we know that there is a, like an A2 protein. There are different types of protein and some people can cope with, you know, A2 milk, for example, but they can't cope with, you know, the normal cow's milk or what, whatever is normally is, but, you know, the other proteins in milk. And it's the same with goat, sheep, and even camel is on the scene now as like this amazing sort of superfood. And it is, under, from my understanding, it is just that the protein molecules are smaller, so it's easier for the body to digest and um, the body, you know, isn't so exhausted and it's not going to cause such an inflammatory response. So if your gut's compromised, you're going to have a better chance with the goat um, and with the sheep and um, camel if you're lumping, lumping that in. Now, you can be really smart about it. And if you do want to try some dairy, because as I said before, there is amazing properties in dairy. It's, you know, got B vitamins. It's got all sorts of things in there. And if you can handle it, you don't want to be cutting cutting it out. So you might even want to ferment the dairy that you're trying for the first time and because the fermenting process is going to break down those proteins, it's going to make it much easier for you to digest, like the fermenting sort of process makes things a bit sort of pre-digested. It's got all that loving gut bacteria in there. The body is going to handle it so much easier. And that might be a great way for you to start to see, can I, can I actually eat this food? How does it make me feel? Um, and then um, amounts, that's a super tricky question that you're probably better at answering than me, Steph. I mean, it's going to be how much exercise, all of those sorts of things. But, um, you know, are you sort of having a lower carb, higher fat sort of diet? But if, you, if this is new in your world of reintroducing foods and trying to see if you can handle it, I would be going, you know, as low as a teaspoon to start with a day and then slowly increasing it. Um, and then whatever sort of sits right with you is different. I mean, as you know, I have quite a lot of butter um, and how much I need per day really does depend on my sort of output of exercise and all, and how sedentary I am and all those sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, butter is obviously very different to, you know, cheese and, and some of the other dairy options that people might still be consuming if it's Greek yogurt or even cow's milk. So I think we've got to also look at what, what type of dairy we're actually discussing because, you know, butter has very low lactose levels, um, and it obviously has so many other, so many other amazing health properties, in, including you know the, obviously the quality fats and the vitamin K and the butyrate, and that's where I think I kind of separate out the conversation. Like we can say dairy free, but you know often that might include butter. So technically, it's not dairy free, but you're really minimising any other intake of of say like cheese and yogurt and milk. Um, but I think, you know, trial and error is really important. Mm. If I eat any kind of cows, like I, I don't have milk, but let's say I have some cheese, I get inflammation in my wrists and knees and it's night and day. Like it comes on pretty much straight away. Um, 
And for me, that's a real like mm-hmm. red flag or it's a flashing light to, to pay attention. I think, all right, well, if I'm having these symptoms externally, what on earth is going on with my gut? Um, I think it's really important that we're aware of mm-hmm. these symptoms. So a little bit of trial and error and some testing in a, in a normal environment where there are no other sort of changes so that you can really learn how you're responding to this food or these foods. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then that trial and error of, um, okay, well, I, I couldn't have, you know, the milk, but, yeah, maybe I, I can try some sheeps and um, the quality of it has a huge part to play as well. So, um, yeah, it's quite a complex question, um, but one that you can only find out through trial and error and I'm the same, Steph, like if I have certain types of dairy, it is pretty much instant for me, the inflammation yeah. that I get. Um, and, and you can only work that out through trial and error and um, knowing that it is just inflammation from that one particular time and then your body's going to move through it and then you know that it, you either need to wait a bit longer or it's just not right for you because there are some people where genetically you're just predisposed to not being able to digest it as well and that's fine. There are plenty of other foods out there. Yeah, definitely. And if it's a little bit confusing for you, you know, to identify, I usually advise like cut it out for 30 days and then bring a little back, a little bit back in with no other changes. And it can often be night and day for a lot of people. Um, and that might apply to someone who's having cow's milk and having yogurt and having cheese and, and not quite sure where to start. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of measuring your heart rate as well. Mm-hmm. So you cut it out and then you eat that food. You obviously take notes to see how you're feeling. Um, but, yeah, measuring your heart rate can also help to see if your body has gone into that inflammatory response and if the food's right for you. So your heart rate will increase as your body sort of tries to handle the food, um, whereas if the food is right for you, your heart rate will remain stable. So it's another great way of sort of checking in as well. Yeah, I love that. Amazing. All righty, let's move on. Nadia has a question about um, can you talk about some natural ways of managing or eliminating chronic reflux? Interesting question. So firstly, I mean, this is not a natural way, but I, I would really get tested there, Nadia, because there's um, obviously quite an imbalance in your body as to why you're getting that reflux and we just talked about SIBO so that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and we know that there are certain um, overgrowths that can happen that cause a lot of acidity into the body and can really have that horrible reflux reaction and so I would definitely be looking at so that test don't guess philosophy and finding out What dude have you got living in your small intestine that's um, causing an excess of acidity in your body? So in that respect, sometimes we can also think that we've got chronic reflux, but it can actually be the opposite. And so there's not enough acid in the stomach to digest our proteins and to be able to assimilate our nutrients. And so sometimes adding in apple cider vinegar, some lemon water, some bitters, even, you know, bitter foods or even some, you know, bitter tonics can make a huge difference in really creating that digestive fire 
and minimize, uh, minimizing that chronic reflux reaction. Um, fermented foods are absolutely awesome to have when you're eating as well to help with that chronic reflux. But, um, yes, certainly I'd be looking into the reasons why, but um, I wouldn't be taking any medications or anything to kind of minimise the reflux. It's often the opposite. Yeah, I agree. I think it's another example of how we've things, had things upside down in the West, unfortunately, and, and the conventional treatment is to use a protein protein ton pump inhibitor and suppress the acid and then uh-huh. the problem never goes away because we obviously need that that perfect balance of acid in the stomach to break down our food i think it's i think it might be about 30 percent. i'll have to check my facts but i do think the numbers about 30 percent of um of reflux cases are SIBO so it's that small intestinal bacterial adv- uh, overgrowth so great advice there to do some further testing um, and one of the other bacterial overgrowths can be H. pylori. So um, that's yeah. something I think needs to be tested for as well before there are any treatment interventions that are essentially guesswork. Mm-hmm. And absolutely um, those sort of natural things that we talked about will be really supportive no matter which overgrowth comes up. So you can start them straight away as you're going through that testing process. Yeah, definitely going to support the entire gut health and and rebalance things to help you digest your food more. Um, And it's all about that pH balance. So that's really important as well. All right. We have so many questions. So we're not going to get through all of them, but I'll just, um, <laughs> I will just prioritize a couple more. Um, I do want to get on to the topic of resistant starch. I know that's um, pretty close to your heart, Kirsty. And we have a question about resistant mm-hmm. starch and gut health in relation to a ketogenic diet. Um, where do they fit for someone who wants to follow a, a longer-term ketogenic diet and how do we prioritise resistant starch? Mm. So this is, this is such a wonderful topic of conversation because um, keto can actually really starve our beautiful beneficial gut bacteria. Mm-hmm. So some people, and, you know, I even did it myself when I first started, you know, this sort of high fat kind of thing and um, exploring that um, more traditional keto sort of uh, diet. You you just get all involved with the fats and it's, you know, oh, I've got to, you know, eat fats and low carbohydrate vegetables and cutting out grains and all this kind of stuff. And that's all cool, but we need to understand that our gut bacteria thrives off fibre and it thrives off resistant starch. And like I'm talking fibre, like, you know, what is it, 25 to 50 grams of fibre a day, like high amounts of fibre your body needs and those gut bacteria, that's what they live off. So if you have changed your diet completely to having like a bulletproof coffee or a fat bomb coffee in the mornings and then you're you're effectively fasting and then you only eat at two o'clock and it's just some you know protein with a little bit of excuse the truck out there. <laughs> um, it's some you know protein with some wilted greens and then some fat on top of that. And then your dinner is also just some broccoli and some protein 
with some more fat, that is not enough fiber in the day to feed your gut bacteria. So you will feel awesome on that for a little while, but then you will notice that you start to see problems arising or imbalances starting to occur because you're effectively starving those beautiful little microbes. So vegetables are an absolute must. They are incredible for feeding the gut microbiome and those beautiful bacteria. And another way we can do that is through resistant starch. Now, resistant starch is effectively food or carbohydrates that have been um, cooked and then they have been cooled. And it's called resistant starch because it resists digestion. So it goes into the mouth and your body doesn't sort of think, oh, I need to digest this. It goes down through the digestive um, tract, goes down straight into the gut microbiome where, (laughs) sorry, there is, it's really convenient the garbage truck just came. So, um, and then that resistant starch goes straight into the gut microbiome where it feeds all of our beautiful, beneficial ancestral microbes. And so absolutely, it is vital to add that resistant starch in. Now, we don't need much resistant starch. You know, a cup a day of resistant starch, say some cooked and cooled rice, or some cooled sweet potato, some green banana flour, all those sorts of things are going to be so wonderful to add into a ketogenic diet. They're not going to impact your ketogenic diet at all, and they are going to be super therapeutic for long term. So if you're wanting to move into that sort of cyclical ketogenic space, which is very much where I sit, so... You'll have times when you're in ketosis and your body's repairing, but you'll also have times when you're out of ketosis and you're refueling and you're nourishing your body, you're nourishing your gut, you know, microbes, and everything is thriving. Now, there is one thing that I have noticed with our clients that if you have parasites, they love resistant starch. So if you um, find that you know, you've been keto and you want to try resistant starch and you start to get pain, cramps, diarrhea, you know, bad back, foggy brain sort of stuff, Um, and you start to either put on weight or lose weight, then you know that you've probably got to look at worms or parasites in the body and that, that resistant starch might be feeding them, not you. So then I would be once again just looking into what's going on there. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point because, you know, it's, it's the missing piece for a lot of people. Um, they take that deep dive into keto and they, as you say, they starve their gut bug. So it's really important that we look at the view more holistically, not just the number of grams of carbohydrates per day. And we factor in, you know, the overall gut health picture. So that was an yeah. awesome Yeah. And just little things like, you know, we need fiber to carry things like estrogen out of our body. It binds to it and carries it out of our body. And if you're a female that, you know, is going through puberty, for example, or you're perimenopausal or there's things changing and happening within your body and you're not eating enough fiber, you are going to have an estrogen dominance situation on your hands. And so, um, yeah, like the, it is just vital 
that yes, you add heaps and heaps and heaps of vegetables in there, but you also look at things like some ground flaxseed or, um, you know, just like a tablespoon of chia seeds a day or just um, some cooked and cooled rice. Just those little tweaks can really um, make a huge change. It's quite phenomenal actually how much you can change things up and improve. Definitely. And we look at the foods, the rice, the sweet potato, the potato, you know, these are foods that we've probably been told to be afraid of in that really traditional ketogenic sense. And, you know, I'm, I'm sick of us um, demonizing, well, particularly when it comes to, you know, vegetables, these whole foods. And then, you know, people are using, I don't know, rice malt syrup or all these different sweeteners. And we've kind of lost our perspective a little bit. So we've got to look at the fact that, you know, they are a vegetable and that, that rice is obviously it's re- re- quite different to the standard grain when it's eaten directly hot um, and it has those amazing therapeutic benefits without impacting, you know, blood sugar levels or, or ketone levels. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Hmm. All right. We've got two um, questions that I'm going to combine together on, on the topic of testings. I think this is really interesting. They're both quite similar. Um, I think I might read them both just for the benefits um, of the, the ladies that have sent the questions in. One from Jemmy says, can you provide some recommendations on where to get your gut tested and to get a report on what foods you should and shouldn't be eating to support your gut? And um, then the similar question from Trisha is, I have an autoimmune disease and now thyroid issues. I want to find out what I'm allergic to, what testing should I done? So I feel like both questions are, are probably a little bit surface level, which is okay, but that both ladies are looking for um, how to work out what foods they shouldn't be eating. But you might have some thoughts on how to go a little bit deeper with th- this approach and to answer their questions from a root cause approach. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I feel... Um, you know, upset for people who <clears throat> think that or, you know, get sort of that picture that it's the food that you eat that causes the autoimmune condition or it's the food that you eat that's causing the gut problem. Now, that's certainly not the case. We need to, you know, look down in the, in the roots of the body. It's a bit like a tree and, you know, going right, right down to the roots. There is an underlying cause that then sort of flares up and we see it as, oh, I ate that food and I felt terrible. But really what it is is uh, I've got a parasite in my gut or I've got an infection in my small intestine or I've got some candida, those sorts of things. Now, when you have those pathogens living within your body, they cause all sorts of inflammation and they eat certain foods for them to multiply. So it's more going back to look at what is living or is in my body that is causing these symptoms and what foods feed what's living in my body. Mm. So, for example, if you've got a parasite, any form of sugar and most carbohydrates are going to feed that parasite. In fact, they feed off proteins as well just to make it even more complex. But they feed off an array of, um, you know, foods. And so if you have a parasite and then you go and have um, some sugary fruit, for example, you're going to get a big flare of your symptoms. 
Now, it might be a flare of what um, feels like an autoimmune you know, condition or a thyroid condition, or it might flare up when you think, oh, I'm allergic to the blueberry that I just ate. It's not the blueberry, it's the sugar in the blueberry that fed the parasite, and then the parasite released that toxic metabolite into your body, and then you got that symptom. So it is a kind of a different way of looking at things. And so if you had a um, sort of a food intolerance or a food allergy test, basically whatever you're eating at that point in time comes up on those tests. I don't feel like they're very accurate and I don't feel like diagnostically they're very helpful for you because I've had those tests done when I was very sick and starting out and sort of understanding gut health and basically the test came back with every food that I was eating at that time on the sheet and I I couldn't understand it because I reduced my food down so much because everything made me feel so sick and they were actually the foods that weren't making me feel so bad but it was saying here that I couldn't handle them on this test but what once you look further down into it what it's really saying is you know my gut's really compromised, it's quite leaky, those proteins are leaking into my bloodstream and so I'm having this immune allergic reaction to those foods because the integrity of my gut is compromised and, you know, there's also infections living in there that are causing the symptoms rather than the food. So the root cause is always what you need to address. What's causing it? So it might be a pathogen, might be a bacterial infection, or is it an absolute complete sort of meltdown of your digestive system? So you're not digesting your food. The integrity of your gut has been compromised. Maybe your liver's really tired or your gallbladder isn't working and you can't emulsify those fats or digest that food and then you can't cope with it. So, um, yeah, I would just keep investigating. And obviously there's incredible practitioners out there that can really help you go that next step to finding the root cause. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I really don't want someone to start with food intolerance testing because like you know firsthand, Kirsty, a lot of the old school advice is to just take out that food and take out this food and then you end up with a very restricted list which for a lot of people is not only highly stressful but it perpetuates the problem because there's no identification of the underlying cause and, and essentially no real treatment protocol. Mm. So, you know, you, yeah. you and I have spoken about bioscreen testing which is the the stool testing that will allow you to find out what's going on in there. And I'll link um, previous episodes for those that haven't heard us speak about bioscreen before. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, what makes me sort of cringe is that you do go through these tests and it's, you know, you can't have this food or you can't have that food. And some people get down to being told that, you know, they can only handle rice bubbles, zucchini and lamb. Mm. And that's it. And they're allergic to all other foods. And, and I have had clients come to Culture Wellness and, and they've been eating like that for two years. Yeah, and it's mind-blowing, isn't it? Yeah. And it, if you're that person, you need to really get some help because there's no nutrients in those foods for what your body needs to function like at all. And, you know, I'm very um, 
very upset about that because that, you know, that happened to me. Mm-hmm. And so I was so malnourished in the end because I was literally just lamb and zucchini and rice bubbles and <laughs> foods like that. So mm-hmm. um, that shouldn't be the case and you can rebuild to be able to get back to a variety of foods that suit your body. Yeah, absolutely, and that's what's really exciting. I have thoroughly enjoyed this Q&A. As I said, we've got so many more questions and we will create another episode for you guys. So please keep sending your questions through. You can definitely um, send them direct through the naturalnutritionist.com.au or um, contact me on Instagram. Kirsty, did you have anything else that you wanted to say before we finish up today? I just thank you for having me, Steph. It's so cool to get all, you know, nerdy and geek out on this stuff. I absolutely love it. So thank you for having me. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. And guys, please do let us know what you think of today's episode and send those questions in for round two. Kirsty, I look forward to having you back on the show very soon. Catch you later, Steph. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.